good to be here with you. For those of you guys, if this is your first time here, my name's Drew. I'm one of the college ministers along with Alec and Randy and Scott. It's already too dark for me to even point to where they are, but um, you can find them at some point after this. We're really glad that you're here. The way the table works is every Thursday night we get together and we open up a section of Scripture, a section from the Bible. We've been walking through 1 Corinthians 15, and we uh, will spend some time walking through the text, and then we'll take a quick break, and then we'll talk, okay, how does this text apply to our lives? So that's what we're going to do tonight. I want to tell you tonight about two French guys. Two very different French guys who lived about a hundred years apart. One was famous for being a philosopher. The other was famous for being a tightrope walker. All right, and and the the tightrope walker, his is a little bit more exciting. We'll get to him in just a bit. But first, uh, the philosopher. This is actually one you probably know. You've probably heard the name Blaise Pascal. He's considered one of the most brilliant French minds kind of in history, maybe, maybe like top, second to Descartes or something like that, kind of known as like this brilliant philosopher. But uh, Blaise Pascal was not just a philosopher. He actually had a lot of things. He was a mathematician. He was a brilliant physicist. He was an inventor. He was a writer. He was also a Christian. And, and he has this famous... Uh, he has this famous philosophical argument that he made during his time for why a person should believe in God, or specifically why a person should live as though God exists. And as a Christian, of course, he's talking about specifically the Christian faith and the Christian God. It's this argument known as, and you may have heard this term, Pascal's wager. His argument was that everyone, when it comes to matters of faith in God, they're making a bet with their life. They're making a wager with their life, um, and the consequences of that wager could be very big. And so his argument is that if we are making this wager, that the most rational thing a person could do with large consequences on the line, the most rational person a thing could do is live as though God does exist, as li- is live as though this book is true, and to try to follow it and to believe that and have faith. And the reason why he says is because to live that way, if we're wagering with our lives, is low risk, high reward. If you believe and if you live as though God exists and you find out at the end you die and you're wrong, well, what happens to you? Nothing. You just die, just like everybody else. So it's really kind of low risk. Now, if you're right, though, the reward is very great. Eternity in heaven, eternity with God, eternity with your loved ones, all of these things. And so he goes, that's a really great, that's a low risk, high reward. Now, on the flip side, though, if you live or you believe as though he is not real, if you choose to live your life not believing him or following him or following this book, then he says, actually, that's very high risk and low reward. If you happen to be right, then you get nothing. At the end of your life, you die just like everybody else. But if you happen to be wrong, then the consequences are great. Then you face judgment at the end of your life, divine judgment for rejecting God all your life. It's a terrible outcome. And so Pascal reasons the most rational thing you can do is live as though this is true, is to believe and try to follow these things. It's, it's not wrong. There's a, there's a basic logic to, the, to that that is Solid, And that's something that has been very compelling to a lot of people over the years. Many people have used Pascal's wager or a form of it in discussing why they choose to believe. There's just this one problem, and that's that the Bible totally disagrees with it. 
The Bible does not agree with that at all. In fact, the chapter that we've been in, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's been saying the opposite. He says, actually, if you wager your life on Christianity, if you wager your life on following Jesus, and it's not true, his last words in the verse we read last week, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, we are to be pitied more than anyone else because we have wasted our life on a lie. Because we have given ourselves to a lie. Now, maybe that works if, if the Christianity you're talking about is one that kind of stands back and just kind of agrees to things. But the kind of Christianity, the kind of Jesus following that the Bible calls us to is something that implies risk and sacrifice and work. And Paul says, if that's not true, that's not a good bet. It's not a good wager. He started last week, for those of you guys who, who weren't here, he starts this chapter in verse one and, uh, verses 1 through 6, and basically it's kind of considered one of the most important sections of Scripture, like in all the Bible, where Paul says to them at the beginning, I passed on this truth to you as of first importance. And he says these things. This is the foundation of our faith. This is what everything else is built on. If this crumbles, everything crumbles. That Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scripture that he was buried, that he was raised to life according to the scriptures, and that he then appeared to the apostles, to myself, Paul says, and to 500 other people at the same time, most of whom are now living, are still alive. So Paul says, you can go check me on this, check the facts on this. And so Paul wants to make clear this is true, and he spends a lot of his time describing this idea. Why? Why, if this is the foundational truth, does Paul feel compelled all of a sudden to tell a bunch of Christians this? Don't they already believe that? Don't they already agree to that? The reason why is because there's this group of people in the Corinthian church at this time who've begun to doubt, who've started uh, stating publicly that they do not believe there's a future resurrection for believers. That at the end, our bodies will not raise back to any sort of new life, that when you die, that's kind of it. Or actually, probably what they believed, this is what most Greek people believed around that time, is that the soul or the spirit would maybe kind of move on into some afterlife, but the body did not. And so Paul says, no, 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 you need to know and remember this, that Christ died and he was buried physically and he rose from the grave physically. And if there is no physical resurrection, if that's not a possibility, then it didn't happen to Jesus either. And if it didn't happen to Jesus, we're all wasting our time. We are to be pitied more than anyone else. He says, we, the apostles, are liars. Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. There is no hope if Jesus did not raise from the grave. But, Paul will tell us tonight, the good news is he did. And because he did, there are some very real implications that that resurrection has for our life and for the world at large. That's what we're jumping into tonight. Go ahead, and if you've got your Bible, you can go to 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. Paul says this at the beginning. He says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Uh, Paul starts by calling Jesus' resurrection the first fruits. What does he mean by that? 
That, Paul, that Jesus' resurrection from the grave was the first fruits. First fruits is this term used to describe the very beginning um, harvest that comes in during a harvest season. After, after in an agrarian society that they mostly all lived in, where you spent the year as a farmer planting or tilling the soil and planting and then kind of watering and tending to and then just waiting and hoping and hoping and hoping that a crop was going to come in. The first fruit was that first little bit of wheat that came in. That first little bit of fruit growing on the tree that came in. And it was the sign to you that all my hard work is going to pay off. That there's going to be a harvest this year. That food is coming in. And so it was this sign of hope. If I'm seeing the first fruit, that means there's more where that came from. And so when Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruit, what he means is there's plenty more where that came from. If Jesus rose from the grave, he says, you can know this. Paul says, you can know this. We will too. If he did it, then that's the sign that something else is coming later, that there will be a resurrection from the dead for us later. And this is a really big deal to him. Uh, what we see there in verses 21 and 22, he says this, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This is what we call a representative headship. And the idea is that the actions of one person can influence and affect the outcome for everyone else. Uh, this was a really easy idea for them to get their mind around because they were much more of a communal society. And it made sense that what I do affects everyone else around me, my family, my clan, my all of those things. It's a harder idea for us to get our minds around in an individualistic and Western culture that we live in. But we still have things like this. For instance, if, if our president declares war on a given country, we would say America has declared war on that country. It doesn't matter if I made the decision to do it or not. If I'm an American, I am now at war with this other country. That's how things work. That's how it's always worked with kings. When a king chooses to do something, his country is now doing that thing. And what Paul is saying here is that's how all humanity works. Through Adam, the first man, as sin entered into him, death then entered into the human race. And because of Adam and his sin, death is now the consequence that all people will face. But through the new Adam, through a new man, Jesus, who came fully human, just like you and I, because he came and he conquered death, because he brought resurrection into the picture, that now becomes a possibility for humanity too. That everyone who belongs to this new humanity, everyone who identifies with this new humanity, humanity that Jesus has started and created, will now resurrect just like Jesus did. We'll live forever as Jesus has, which is a really cool thing. And this will set up a series of dominoes that will begin to fall. And that's what Paul talks about in the following verses, starting in 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So there will be a resurrection, but it'll all happen in the right order. First, Jesus and then afterward, at his coming, at his second coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, 
when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be abolished is death. So the first domino that falls, Paul says, actually has already fallen, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That starts this process that though it may be a long process, it is an inevitable process. So the first domino falls, and then there's going to be a little bit of a gap before the second one falls, which is our resurrection, which means you and I today live in a period of waiting. We live in a life of waiting, waiting for this thing to happen, believing it will, but we stand in a, a time of pause until that day comes. But it's, it's, it's the right kind of waiting. There's really two kinds of waiting. There is an anxious waiting. There's the waiting of a grad student or or of a student who's applied for a grad school and they're waiting to find out whether or not they're going to get in. And that's a different kind of waiting. And then there's, there's anticipatory waiting. This is the waiting of a kid who's been told next month we're going to Disney World. And they know it's happening. And so it's not the waiting of anxiety. It's not the waiting of, I I hope, I hope, I hope, oh, please can this happen. It's the waiting of, I know, I know, I know, and I cannot wait. This is the kind of waiting we live with today. And then after this, it says, Jesus will destroy every opposition that has ever set itself itself up against his reign and his rule, whether that be demonic opposition or Roman emperors or dictators or kings or philosophies or idols. Everything will fall to the feet of Jesus Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. And then finally, the last great enemy, death itself will be destroyed. And this is a remarkable thing, that the one inevitable thing in all human history, that is, this is the one thing that we will all share in common. We will not all get cancer. We will not all get married. We will not all get rich. We will not all have kids. We will all die. It is the one thing common to every human being. The one inevitable thing in life is death. And he says that one inevitable thing will be a thing of the past. Will no longer be inevitable. Will be gone forever because Jesus will put death to death. He continues on in verse 27. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, that is, God the Father, so that God may be all in all. So everything will fall under the reign and rule of Christ except for this one thing, and that is God the Father. And this may seem a little bit confusing to you, Because there are so many passages in the Bible like John 1 and like Colossians 2 and like John 14 and John 5, which we read just in these past couple weeks where Jesus calls himself equal to the Father. There are so many passages that describe Jesus as being equal to the Father, but there are also a number of passages that talk about this idea that Jesus will be subject to the Father, will submit himself under the Father. In fact, that he already does those things. Here's your big theological term for the day, okay? You can, you can write it down if you want. You don't have to. Um, this is called the essential equality but functional subordination of the Son. 
Okay? That is, in his essence, what we, have, what we see in scriptures, in his essence, Christ is one with the Father. And therefore, in his essence, he is equal with the Father. And yet, in the Trinity, we see that all three members play different roles. And so in his function, in his role, the Son has chosen to submit himself to the will of the Father and to do what the Father does. This is a remarkable thing about Christianity, is that we believe in a God who is powerful over all things and yet still submits, which speaks really uh, strongly about the kind of people that that God calls us to be. People who are constantly willing to lay down our own pride and our own position to serve other people because that's what the Son of God did for us. That's what He does to this day. Now Paul is going to give two reasons why it makes no sense for the Corinthians to abandon their belief in a future resurrection. And the first reason is really, really confusing sometimes. So, verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? So Paul says, it makes no sense to believe there's no resurrection because then why are people being baptized for the dead? And then he just kind of leaves it at that. And he doesn't give any sort of explanation. And he doesn't talk about what he actually means by that. And so this has led to a ton of confusion on some people's part and a lot of different theories as to what Paul means. I'm not going to go too far into it. I don't want to get too sidetracked. But I believe basically that there are two options that Paul could be referring to here. The first is this, that Paul is talking about people being baptized vicariously for loved ones who have died. That is, my grandpa died and he never became a Christian, he never accepted Christ, or he did but never got baptized. And so now I go through some ritual where I get baptized like on his behalf and then that baptism counts to him. Right? That's one option. And, and there's some people, actually like the Mormons, actually have a whole practice built around this. They believe in this, and they have a whole practice of baptism for the dead, an entire ritual around it. I would say this. That's always something to be a little bit, be aware of. If there's, anytime you have a group building a big theology on one small obscure verse, that should be kind of a, a red flag a little bit. Um, the biggest problem with believing that that's what Paul is talking about is that there is nothing else in Scripture that ever talks about or condones that. As a matter of fact, most of, uh, most of what we see, actually all of what we see, of the early church fathers, like the Christians right after this, are always condemning any practice of baptism for the dead. And so that doesn't seem to be what Paul would be talking about. There is actually a chance that Paul is talking about it but not condoning it. He's saying, hey, some of you guys are actually being baptized for the dead, which means you're not even being consistent with your own logic. If you don't believe people can be risen from the grave, then why even do this? I don't agree with it, but I don't know why you even do it. That's a possibility. The other possibility is that this should be translated baptized for the sake of the dead, in which case Paul might be meaning that there are people who their, their main, their first primary motivation for coming to Christ and being baptized is that they have loved ones who were following Jesus and who died, and they want to see them. For the sake of the dead, for the sake of my dead loved ones, I want to give my life to Christ because I want to go see them after I die. Now, that's not a great like, thing to build an entire faith on, is I just want to see my family after I die, but it's not a bad place to start. 
I think when I was seven years old and I first started talking about becoming a Christian, part of my motivation was probably even this. I want to be with my parents. I want to be with my family after I die. And so there's a chance that this is what Paul's talking about. Regardless of which side you choose, the reasoning is the same. And that is that this practice of baptism for the dead or whatever it is, is inconsistent if you do not believe that we actually resurrect, if there is nothing after this life. Last few verses here, verse 30. Here's his other reason why it's inconsistent. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So the next reason he gives is more personal. Why, Paul says, am I going through all the crap that I am going through if there is nothing for me on the other side of this? If you know Paul's story, you know that he endured a lot for the gospel. You can write down, if you're keeping notes, 2 Corinthians 11, 23-29. This is where Paul documents a lot of this. In that passage, he talks about how he traveled thousands of miles by foot and by sea to preach the gospel to people. He also faced imprisonment multiple times. He faced public beatings. He was shipwrecked three different times. He faced 40 lashes five different times and, and an attempted mob execution on his life and a whole lot more than that. Paul has gone through worse than like anybody else and he is an extreme example. But the truth is, Christianity wasn't making life easier for anybody in the first century. Like to become a Christian made your life hard oftentimes, often subjected you to ostracism or persecution. Paul says, listen, if there's nothing beyond this, if we're not raised after this, then let's stop wasting these last years of our lives. Let's eat and drink and be merry. Let's enjoy what little life we have left rather than risking it all to try and share the gospel with more people rather than giving our lives in sacrifice for these things. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But now I want to wrap up this. Verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. So Paul closes this section by warning them. He says, bad company corrupts good morals. In other words, he says they must separate from these people who are denying the truth of the resurrection. Because this belief that we will not resurrect, that there is no resurrection, it was having some terrible consequences on the Corinthian church. Much of the immorality, some commentators say, much of the immorality in the Corinthian church that we've been reading about all year could probably be traced back to this belief. That if my body's just going to die and go away forever and rot in a grave, then what does it matter what I do with my body? I can, I can get hammered every night if I want. I can sleep with as many prostitutes as I want to sleep with. I can sleep with my stepmom, as one guy was doing in the Corinthian church. I can do whatever I want because it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. It's not going to last anyway. Paul says, listen, the things that you are starting to believe, the things that you are starting to buy, have a profound effect on the way you live your life. And so you need to separate yourself, he says, from those who are teaching these things. What we believe shapes the way we live. But not always. Sometimes 
The things we believe, even the most important things that we believe, do not affect our lives. And that is a problem. We'll talk about that after the break. Take a couple minutes, stretch your legs. We've got a bathroom in there if you need to go right through that door to your right. And then we'll jump back to our study. All right. I, uh, I told you guys that I was going to tell you about two French guys tonight. The second French guy that I want to tell you about is a guy by the name of Charles Blondin. Uh, that's not his real name. Obviously, Charles Blondin is not a very French name. Uh, his, that was his stage name. His real name was Jean-Francois, which is a very French-sounding name. And Jean-Francois, a.k.a. Charles Baldwin, uh, came over to from Europe after spending a while there as a tightrope artist, traveled over to America in the early 1850s and spent a little bit of time here before coming in 1858 to see Niagara Falls. And from the moment uh, Charles Blondin saw Niagara Falls, it became this obsession for him. And all he wanted to do was string a rope across those falls and walk across them. And so he spent the year thinking about that and planning that and preparing for that. And then early in 1859, he began promoting this big feat. It had never been done before. Nobody had even dared to do it. It was at the point where he wanted to cross uh, 1,100 feet across, right? So like one and a half football fields across and then 160 feet high. And so at the point that he wanted to, to cross over those things, wait a second, 1,100, 300, three and a half football fields, is that right? We'll say three and a half football. It was a million miles across that thing, okay? So it's like a million miles across this thing. And he wants to cross over that, this thing um, in front of all of these people. So he, be, he begins promoting it. And then finally, on June 30th, uh, 1859, thousands gathered. It's estimated that some like 100,000 people gathered to watch him. People on both sides in Canada and in America gathering to watch this incredible event as this guy tries to walk across the falls with no safety net, no harness, anything like that. And to many people's surprise, he did it with like no problems at all. All the way across, all the way back, blew everybody's minds. A lot of people showed up just because they wanted to see somebody die. Somebody do something crazy, right? And so there's some people who are a little disappointed. Most people were really like, this is crazy. This is the most amazing thing we've ever seen. And they couldn't believe it. And so people started coming back day after day to watch Blondin uh, do this thing over and over again. They started calling him the Great Blondin. And the Great Blondin, though, was not content to just walk across this wire uh, over and over again. He had to continue to kind of amp up uh, the daredevil factor over and over again. And so he started finding new ways to do it. He did it backwards one time. Uh, he began doing it blindfolded. He did it on stilts at one point. He did it with his manager uh, riding piggyback on him across the thing over and over and over again. There's this story that one day Blondin brought out this wheelbarrow. Maybe you've heard this. Brought out this wheelbarrow and showed it to the crowd, and, and they're all waiting there, so excited to see what crazy thing he's going to do next. And he says, how many of you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow all the way across that tightrope 
without falling. And the crowd goes crazy. They've seen it. They know what this man can do. And so they start screaming, yeah, we, we believe it. We believe it. Show it, you know. And so he gets up and he walks all the way across with the wheelbarrow, walks all the way back, which took a while, by the way, to do that. Um, but he would walk all the way there, all the way back. And they're all just going ecstatic. This is so crazy. There's nothing this man can't do. And so he says, how many of you believe I can push this wheelbarrow across with someone in the wheelbarrow? And they all go crazy. Yes, we believe it. We know you can do it, blonde, and you can do it. And he goes, all right, any volunteers? And it sounded a lot like this. Crickets. Now, we wanted to step up and do that. You see, all the people gathered around Charles Blondin that day really, truly believed that he could push a human being across that tightrope But when it came time to stake their lives on that belief, that belief didn't go that deep. They weren't willing to go that far. The belief that they had did not affect their actions, did not result in any different change or anything that they did differently. This Sunday, millions of people around the world are going to gather together to celebrate the greatest event in human history. And that is the resurrection of the Son of God, the fact that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, died some 2,000 years ago on a cross. This is documented in history. It's not argued. Died on a cross and then three days later rose from the grave. And I believe that that is just as true as his crucifixion. And many people will gather together to celebrate this fact and they will hear messages about this and they will amen those messages and they will sing worship songs about it and they will confirm their belief over and over again and yet many of them are going to go home and then live like it's not true. The beliefs that they have about who Jesus is and what he has done will not affect their actions. Paul makes it really clear in this chapter that the resurrection, both Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection, that that um, that that really did happen. His resurrection really did take place. You need to, if you weren't here last week, you need to go back. We have a a podcast where we put our messages, The Table OSU, and listen to Alec. Alec talked uh, about this and and how we kind of the confirmations and the, the evidence for the resurrection, why we believe it to be true. Paul wants his readers to know it's true, but he also wants them to know that if it's true, there are some very real implications. There are some life-changing implications. If I believe that Jesus rose from the grave, and if I believe that I will too one day, my life should look different from my neighbors who don't believe that. I shouldn't be living in the exact same way that they do, and yet there are often times when I do live just like them. There are often times when my actions do not reflect my beliefs. What does that look like? How is it that a person can live like the resurrection is not real? What practically does it mean to live like the resurrection is not real? There's probably a bunch of different things we can get into. I want to talk about just three from this passage. Three from 1 Corinthians 15. Three ways that we sometimes live as though the resurrection is not real. The first is this. We live like the resurrection's not real when we let shame from our past define us. Here's what Paul says in last week's passage, verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. So if Jesus has not been raised, you are still in your sins, which means the reverse is true. If Jesus has been raised, you are not still in your sins. Every one of us, I believe this is every one of us, if we were to take a poll, would admit that we have had moments of deep regret in our life. Things that we have done, maybe not just moments for some of us, maybe it's been periods of our life, long stretches of our life that we deeply regret. You have had some point in your life when you deeply hurt someone that you loved. You've had moments in your life when you lived in complete hypocrisy, pretending to be one kind of person when you were secretly living like another, and the morals and the ethics that you seemed to parade around in front of everybody else, those were not the way that you were living behind closed doors. Or maybe you found yourself doing shameful things, things that if they were to be mentioned up here, if people were to know, you would be mortified about those things. All of us I've had moments of deep regret, and I think every one of us knows the feeling of waking up the next morning and feeling this gut-level pain and ache inside of us with the guilt that we are racked with because of the things that we have done. Just to feel overcome, but for some of us, that guilt and shame has lasted a lot longer than just the morning after. For some of us, that guilt and shame has never really gone away because of how bad the thing was that you did or because of the fact that you did it over and over and over again when you swore you were going to stop and that that was going to be the last time and you made all these promises to yourself and to God that you were never going to go back to that again and then you did it again and you couldn't believe yourself and, and the shame that you have felt with that has stuck around so long that it feels like it's a part of you this constant ache inside of you that hinders your prayer life because you feel like you can't face God when you've acted this way and it keeps you from having any sort of meaningful worship. It feels lifeless when you try to sing songs to Him because you know the kind of person you are and it prevents you from any real sort of community because that would require vulnerability and you can't let people know the kind of person you are. If they knew what you were really like, this voice whispers in your head over and over again, if they only knew who you really were, maybe, maybe that is you. Maybe you did something five years ago. Maybe you did something last semester. Maybe you did something last night that still seems to just rip you apart. And if that's you, you need to know God says to you not that that's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. When we hurt people, when we wrong others, when we sin against God and reject what He has called for us, it is a big deal. So God doesn't say to you, it's not a big deal. No, what He says is that my son died for that. My son has taken that from you when he died on the cross and he rose from the grave to prove that that's true. It would still be a big deal today if it wasn't for this truth that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He raised again according to the Scriptures. And because those things are true, Romans 8.1 tells us this, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
that if you have placed your faith in Him, you have given your sins to Him. He took them all from you, which means He took all the shame. So to walk around as though I could never forgive myself for what I did and God could never forgive me is to live as though Jesus did not raise from the grave. He did raise from the grave and He did take your sins and He did take your shame. Because He did those things, there is no more room for guilt. Yes, we will feel conviction when we do things that are wrong. That's a good thing. When the Holy Spirit convicts me for my sin, but guilt that sticks around long after my repentance, there's no room for that in the Christian life because Jesus has taken those from you. If Jesus rose from the grave, your worst moments do not define you. And neither do your best. Jesus defines you. Jesus defines you. There's another way, though, Paul talks about us still being in our sins. There's another way that a person can still be in their sins, another way to live like the resurrection isn't real, and that's when we act like we are enslaved to our sin. Christ's death and resurrection did not just free us from sin's shame. It also freed us from all of its power. Romans 6, 1 through 4. Actually, I want to just turn there and read this to you because Paul explains it there as well as I ever could. In Romans 5, he talks about this truth, that because of God's great grace in Jesus, His grace is always going to be bigger than our sin. Which leads to this question at the beginning of Romans 6. What should we say then? Should we continue in our sins so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. That is, when you came to Christ and you were buried with Him in baptism, an old you went under and a new you was raised to life in Him so that you can walk in newness of life. He will go on to say in Romans 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Your sin does not control you. Andrew Wilson, my, one of my favorite writers, Alec can tell you I bring up his name probably every other day. Uh, Andrew Wilson is this British writer and British pastor there living over in London. He tells a, time about, uh, tells a story about a time that he was driving his car out in the English countryside. And as he was driving along this small road, he came across, he began to pass this little boy that was walking right on the side of the road. But this boy was holding this rope that was attached to the largest bull that Andrew said he had ever seen in his life. He said this, this bull was the size of like a garden shed. It was dwarfing the car that he was riding in, dwarfing, of course, the little boy. And he felt like this anxiety go up in him, like, oh my gosh, I might watch this bull like maul a little boy to death right in front of me. And he felt himself getting really nervous, but he was in a car with his cousin Zeb, actually British, so his, his cousin's over here. He's in a car <laughs> with his cousin uh, Zeb, and, and Zeb explained to him, no, no, no. You don't actually have to worry about that. That's kind of how things work here. And, and he began to explain to him that this is actually a practice that a lot of farmers do is they will take bulls when they are young and they'll put a ring through their nose and tie a rope to a stake or to a pole somewhere until that bull learns that it is futile to resist, that it has no ability as a young bull to be able to break away from that rope and it gets used to being enslaved to that rope. So much so that 
by the time it grows up to be this massive creature that no rope could hold or contain and no boy could hope to hold down, it doesn't matter because it already believes, I can't do anything about this. Wilson says that there are actually a lot of Christians who live their life that way. That when you gave your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and lived in you. And the old you was put to death and you have been born up in a new creation. That there is a part of you that is already resurrected. And so no matter what that sin is that feels like it's got its claws in you, whether that be pornography or an inability to forgive someone who has wronged you or this tendency in you to always go back to your old bad habits whenever your friends kind of pull you in that direction, no matter how How much it feels like that has control of you, it does not. It cannot make you do those things anymore. The old you had to do what sin said. But if you were in Christ, Paul says, the new you is no longer enslaved to those things. 2 Peter 1.3 says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and and godliness. There is a third way, though, to live like the resurrection didn't happen. We live like the resurrection did not happen when we live like this life is all we have. Back to our passage today in verses 30 and 33, Paul says this. Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What Paul is saying here is the life that I am living, I am every day putting my life on the line for the gospel, for Jesus. And if, if there is no resurrection, then the life that I'm living is insane. It does not make any sense. I'm wasting the last 20, 30 years of my life just getting beat up over and over again. That makes no sense And Paul's life did not make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Why would someone who had a good life, he was moving up the ranks in his culture in honor and respect. He was heading in the direction that he wanted to go. Why would they put themselves through all the things that Paul puts himself through? His short answer is found in 2 Corinthians 4.17, where Paul says this, I am convinced that this light and momentary affliction, kind of interesting that Paul calls uh, public beatings uh, light afflictions, this light and momentary affliction is producing an absolutely incomparable weight of glory on the other side. That is that everything I go through now here is small and temporary compared to what I have waiting for me on the, the other side. And every struggle that I am going through, God will only use to increase my joy and my happiness on the other side. I can risk everything now. I can face hardship now because I know that now is not all I have. That there is more coming for me. If now is all I have, then yes, let's eat and drink. Let's be merry for tomorrow we die. Many people, when they hear that phrase, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, they, they think of kind of like the party lifestyle. They think of like living it up and just kind of like drunken debauchery and just do whatever makes you feel good in the moment. Yes, it can include that. But eat, drink, and be merry can include something bigger than that. It, it really means making the most of this life because it's short. 
squeeze as much temporary happiness and pleasure as you can out of this life because it's all we have. So it would go something like this. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, don't give your money to other people. Don't be generous with your finances to missions or to those who are in need. No, no, no. Spend that money on what makes you happy or save that money so you can have an an early retirement and not work all your life. If Jesus did not raise from the grave, do not sacrifice or inconvenience yourself too much for other people to try to serve them. I mean, do it some. Do it enough to make you feel good about yourself so you can kind of feel warm and fuzzy inside and pat yourself on the back, but don't do it in any way that might really cost you because you don't want to spend your life working for other people's happiness if this is all you have. If Jesus did not raise from the grave, don't bring up Jesus with your classmates or your neighbors or your co-workers because that's just awkward. And it just makes things uncomfortable and life is too short to be awkward and uncomfortable. But if Jesus really did raise from the dead, then by all means do those things Give yourself to his cause. Sacrifice and serve and love and give and share the gospel. Spend yourself here on this earth. Don't waste your time on petty things like trying to get rich. Spend yourself on something that matters because we know that life is more than just this world. You may think to yourself, if I don't look out for me, if I don't look out for my happiness, if I don't work for my happiness, who will? Jesus will. Jesus secures your happiness, both in this life and in the life to come. And so we don't have to be looking out for ourselves all the time when I know that the Son of God looks after me and cares about my joy and my happiness. I can live my life in a way that's different from my neighbor's. My cousin Morgan Weiss, she's on staff at Sunnybrook. She worked at the high school and junior high. A couple years ago, her grandpa, uh, who she loved very much, different, different side of the family, so her grandpa, but not mine. Uh, her grandpa, who was, uh, spent his life as a minister for small-town churches, just kind of going around different parts, Arizona, Colorado, Missouri, spent most of the last several years in Unionville, Missouri, actually where Randy's from, this little small church there. And uh, two years ago, he caught COVID in the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of 2020. And because it was in the middle of the pandemic, his family wasn't allowed to go see him. Uh, He went and spent his last few days just in a nursing home and died there. And Morgan went up to the funeral, uh, drove up there, and she told me as she was driving back, she just started thinking about his life. The truth is, Gene, that's his name, Gene, had a good life, but it was not a life that a lot of people would envy. He lived most of his life kind of in relative obscurity, not really being known for very much, just kind of faithfully preaching at small town churches, um, doing a number of kind of hard things. He didn't make a whole lot of money, but gave a fair amount of that money away to other causes and to other people, inconvenienced his family a lot. His family, he had four kids. One of his daughters had Down syndrome, so spent much of his life taking care of her, but they also invited into their homes over the course of their life a number of foster kids, and not just foster kids, sometimes entire families that needed help came to live with them. And he spent the last several years of his life basically... um, traveling around and visiting people in the hospital and visiting his wife who had Alzheimer's in the nursing home who did not recognize him or know him. Morgan said she thought as she drove home thinking about her grandpa, this thought entered her mind. 
man, if none of this is real, if Jesus is not real, my grandpa's life did not make any sense. My grandpa's life was a waste of time if none of this is real. And I remember when she said those words, I remember thinking to myself, that might just be the greatest compliment anyone could ever be paid. I hope they write that on my tombstone. If Jesus wasn't real, his life doesn't make sense. If Jesus didn't raise from the grave, Drew wasted his time. I hope they write that on my tombstone because I want to live my life in a way that only makes sense if Jesus really rose from the grave and if I will too. I believe that that is true. I believe that's true for you. I believe that's true for me. And so my encouragement to you tonight is this. You believe, most of you, believe that Jesus rose from the grave. So live like it. Let me pray. Father, you know the conviction that I have faced even as I have tried to write this message because you know that I don't do this very well sometimes. You know that I struggle to live as though this is all real. I believe it with all my heart, Lord, but, but it's just so easy to live an easy, comfortable life sometimes. God, please stir in us by your Spirit. Stir in us to not just believe the truth about Jesus, but to live the truth about Jesus. Uh, to live like this life is not all we have and our sins don't control us and our shame doesn't define us. I pray that your Spirit would do that for me and my brothers and sisters here. I pray for my friends who do not know you, Lord, that you would confirm the truth of the things that were spoken tonight, that you would make that real to them. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.